Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. I say this every week around here, but we say it every week because we really do mean it. We believe, like truthfully, honestly believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And so we want you to know God. That's the mission of this church is what we're about here. And so if the, the Bible is the tool that he's going to use to get you there, then we want your nose in a Bible as much as possible. If you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home, and I'll call it a win. Uh, Romans chapter 14. Uh, so we took a break from our Justin Justifier series last week to focus on baptism for a little bit. All right, so uh, we, we preached on baptism. We were still in Romans because apparently we just can't leave this behind. Um, but uh, we were still in Romans, but we took a break last week. We talked about baptism. We got to dunk some people. It was a good day. Uh, I do get to excitedly announce that we get to do another baptism next Sunday. All right. So yeah, it's, let's just keep this rolling. Like that's a good thing, right? And so, uh, so we shut that down for last week, but now we are back. And Lord willing, we are going to spend the next five weeks, hear me, finishing the book of Romans. I know, do you, do you believe me though? Like I can say that with the face mic on, but do you actually believe me? All right? No, Lord willing, we're going to spend the next five weeks finishing the book of Romans. For the uninitiated, uh, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. That's why we call it Romans. We're really, really brilliant when it comes to naming things. All right? And so we think that Paul wrote this letter in about 56 AD. He was probably in Corinth at the time, and he writes the letter to the church at Rome. Uh, he believes that God is calling him to take the gospel onto Spain. He wants to evangelize there. He wants to plant churches there and he sees the Roman church as an ally to help him get there. He, he wants to, to use them to raise up money, financial support, people to go with him, all those kinds of things. So he sees the church at Rome as an ally to help him get there. But instead of simply asking for that help, just outright, hey, can you help a brother out? We're on the same team, something like that. Now, Paul instead casts a massive vision for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others like him to take that gospel to the nations. He, Romans, in, an, in other words, is it's a grand logical argument for why people need to know Jesus. Like that, that's Romans in a nutshell. This is why people need to know Jesus. And the picture that we've been using to kind of wrap our heads around this giant picture is that of a skyscraper, right? Because skyscrapers are giant, right? If you stand at the foot of one, you get and kind of look up, you, you know, it, it, you're probably going to get dizzy. Like skyscrapers are a feat of modern engineering. They're a, a complex web of pieces that form one giant whole, but, but somehow they always seem to get built, right? With a, with a clear plan and some, a lot of resources and a long calendar, the, the skyscraper always seems to get built, no matter how big and daunting it might feel. And Romans is the same way, right? Uh, so the first 11 chapters of Romans is that... Uh, to kind of put a picture to it, would be kind of like the superstructure of a skyscraper. It's the bones, right? It's the superstructure of the skyscraper, uh, the bones of the building. And the, and the foundation of this building is Jesus himself, right? Paul anchors this thing deep into the bedrock. Jesus' own good character is the only thing that this gospel skyscraper could ever ever stand on. It's the only thing that's resolute enough. It's the only thing that's eternal enough. It's the only thing that's, uh, that's sinless enough to build this skyscraper on. And so uh, Paul anchors this thing to the bedrock. And so that's chapter one. But then he starts building up from there. And we learn very, very, very quickly that we, you and I, we don't look anything like Jesus. Like not even a little bit. 
Not, not even close. All men have sinned. All men have rejected God, the good, wise, creator, king. We have all fallen short of his glory, and we all stand condemned. The language that Paul uses is that we are all without excuse. He indicts us with creation. He indicts us with God's law. He even indicts us with the, the rebellion that's buried down in each and every one of our hearts. Over and over and over again, he keeps nailing those nails down. And a perfectly just God. We believe that, right? We believe that he's never erred to do the right thing. We believe that he's never once failed to do what was good and right and appropriate. A perfectly just God must act consistently with his perfect justice. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And so in chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, Paul argues, he tells us that the wages, the thing rightfully earned for our sin is death, right? God's wrath is not some scare tactic cooked up by people who want to control folks. It's what's owed to me. I, I deserve it. In fact, if, I, if, it, if, if God fails to give it to me, he's not paying me what, I, what I'm owed. But in the very same verse, Paul doesn't even stop to breathe. He, he also says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he pays the debt of our sin. Perfect justice and perfect mercy meet head on in Jesus' shredded flesh. And so uh, Paul makes it clear that, that the gospel is not that sin is ignored. It's not swept under the rug and, and pretended that it's not there. No, 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 no. Sin, the good news, the gospel is that sin is atoned for. It is paid for. It is satisfied, we could say. But Paul's gospel skyscraper keeps growing beyond that. He's, he's not merely concerned with the transaction of the gospel, as important as that is. He also asks the, the questions that emerge after that massive announcement that flow out of that reality. And so from there, he asks the question, well, what about the law then, right? I mean, didn't, didn't God give a bunch of commandments to some people and say, do this and live? Like, like what do we do with that? I mean, if people are reconciled to, to God through Jesus, then why did God give a long list of do's and don'ts? What about the law then? Well, the law is meant for good. It, it promised life, he says. Do this and live is not untrue. But sinful hearts are utterly incapable of satisfying that law, and so the law ultimately brings death. The law is really God's mirror to our own unrighteousness in order to point to our desperate, desperate need for a Savior. Our failure to obey the law, follow the law, fulfill the law is really a, a pointer, an indicator of just how badly we need Jesus to step in and do something about our problem. The law itself is good, but its purpose is to point us to Jesus. And then after that, Paul asks the next question, well, what about the Jews then, right? God's special covenant people? Like, didn't he, didn't he have this one ethnic group of people that he called his own treasured possession? And I mean, wasn't ethnic Israel saved just by merely being ethnic Israel? Paul's answer to that question is no. 
The spiritual offspring of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham. That's his answer. Those who trust God and and what God is doing, those are the offspring of Abraham. Circumcised flesh doesn't draw you near to God. A circumcised heart does, right? That's the distinction there. And yet God is still faithful despite Israel's faithlessness. And so in chapter 11, Paul argues that, that God is going to bring many more Jews one day into the kingdom. Someday, we, we don't know exactly when, we've got some theories about it, but we just don't know. But before Jesus returns, many more Jews will hear the gospel and respond to it in faith. Why? Well, it's not because Jews are smarter than the average bear, right? It's because God is good. He is sovereign. He is faithful. He is working all things to the fulfillment of his promises. And because he will get the glory for it forever and ever, amen. That's the game. He will keep his promises for it and uh, his promises and we will forever celebrate the fact that he keeps his promises. That's that's the game we're playing and and that's the way chapter 11 ends, right? With Paul exploding into worship over how big and how lovely and how good our God is. Paul builds this gospel superstructure and then he starts to he just got us to call a timeout and celebrate that for a little bit. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, right? He explodes into worship. He unfolds massive reality after massive reality after massive reality. And he goes, hang on, guys. We got to celebrate this. And so he calls a timeout and he worships. It moves him to respond. But as praiseworthy as that is, the superstructure is not a usable skyscraper yet. It's just the bones of the building. You can't do anything with the bones of the building. You've got to begin to wrap this thing in a facade and give it some, some character. And so in chapter 12, Paul begins to, to do exactly that. He puts flesh on the bones. It starts out by saying that, that these truths demand a whole life response, remember? A whole life response, a logical, spiritual, reasonable sacrifice of worship. And if, if you remember several weeks ago, we gave you a little cheat sheet, all right? We gave you a little cheat sheet a few weeks ago to help you navigate it. And I think we dumped all the ones that we had left in your chairs so they look like this in case you didn't get one. There's a little bitty stack over there in the back. Hey, guess what? We're going to use our cheat sheet again today, all right? We gave you a little cheat sheet because we wanted you to, to, to kind of help you understand how to navigate these last few chapters of the book of Romans. In fact, it's my opinion that without understanding these things, without having these things as the framework for how we read, we're going to totally misread Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. And so uh, let's just look at it real quick. Three things to remember. Because Jesus is the king who both saved me and reigns eternally in the heavens, I should, one, think less of myself. Whether I think I'm awesome or I don't, I should just think less of myself. I should think more of others. I should look for ways to serve rather than to be served. And thirdly, I should play the longer kingdom of God game. I should live and think and operate in the world in such a way that it looks like I'm actually aiming for a better prize coming later. Right? Those three things are are our guide to helping us properly understand these four chapters of the Bible. And so three weeks ago in Romans 12, Paul began to to flesh out our spiritual, logical worship within the context of the church. Why the church? Because if you can't get this stuff right in the church, you're not going to get it right outside of the church either. It's just kind of how it works. So he starts with the the, the domain that that we all kind of know and are familiar with and need to get locked down before we worry about the other stuff. 
So he starts with the church, and he, he calls us to, says that we're given, each of us are given gifts to serve our church family. Says that we're called to love what is good and abhor or hate what is evil. We're called to peaceably, live peaceably as possible uh, with those we disagree with. And you know what? Actually, just maybe serve our enemy. It's a crazy idea, right? Like, who would dare do such a thing? Serve our enemy? Could you imagine saying such a thing during the political season? <laughs> serve our enemy? And it's not because it's easy, and it's not because it, it, it's going to change the game. It's, no, it's because Jesus served us when we were his enemy. That's the reason. We, we love because we were first loved. We serve because we were first served. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus, uh, Paul calls us to give our, our enemy some food, slightly less expensive for us. It's just how it works. And then two weeks ago, Two weeks ago, JB helped us frame, uh, helped us use this framework to, 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 to look at Romans 13. Our, our logical, spiritual, reasonable sacrifice of worship also plays out outside of the church. And it does so in one of the biggest domains that the world has to offer, government, right? And I would argue that it also applies to all kind of sub-governmental domains, things like work, school, even petty dumb stuff like your HOA. Yeah, even there. That we are called to, to be submissive to earthly authorities as if we're submitting to God. Not because those authorities are perfect. Not even close, actually. In fact, we may disagree with just about everything they stand for. There will definitely be times when earthly leaders command you to do something that God forbids. And, and in that moment, we can and should obey God rather than man. There's no, there's no debate about that. But like, there's also a whole world of things that don't exist in that category. And so in those moments, we need to remember our cheat sheet, right? This isn't about you. We're playing the, the longer kingdom of God game here. And so we have an others-focused mission to point people to a coming kingdom. And so at the, at the end of the day, our, our hope is not placed in this or any other earthly kingdom. You can fill in the blank with whatever empire you want, right? That empire, no matter what it is, is small and temporary compared to God's kingdom. Throw out whatever empire. You want to go America, you want to go Rome, you want to go Babylon, whatever empire you want to talk about. Tiny little blip on the radar compared to God's actual kingdom. And all kingdoms and all their kings with them will ultimately one day answer to him. Not any other court. His. For how they rule. And so we can submit to disagreeable temporary leaders and we can faithfully pay our taxes and we can try our best as, as we can to live as model citizens in whatever place God has put us. Why? Because well, we know that our salvation is nearer now than when we first began. We know that, that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Emperor Nero was a tyrant. Like, like anybody trying to argue otherwise has probably never read a history book. He was... He was not a, a good guy, but Nero will ultimately be forgotten one day. No one's going to remember his name. He will ultimately be forgotten on an eternal scale, and that day with a capital D is closer to being here than it was last week. 
and the week before that, and the week before that. And so what do we do? We, we be smart, and we use our 80 to 100 years to point people to that eternal reality instead of anyone that's happening now, right? And that's what JB walked us through two weeks ago. And so we have a, a spiritual, logical sacrifice of worship within the, the broader structure of the church, and we have a spiritual, logical sacrifice of worship within all the major domains of society, but like, what about the ground level, right? Like, like let's put some boots on the ground. We're talking about the air game. Let's talk about the ground game now. Like, what about, like, our normal, everyday, interpersonal relationships? Like, when I have somebody over at my house, what does that look like? If I have a conversation with my, my friend around the water cooler at work, if I get on Facebook this afternoon, what does this spiritual sacrifice of, of worship look like? Well, hey guys, Paul's about to answer our question. And he's going to do so in multiple levels over the next two chapters. So you ready to look at the next piece? Romans chapter 1, or 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. We're just starting over. It's okay. Give it another year and a half, it'll be all right. Romans chapter 14, look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Okay, so these three verses are a little bit confusing without context, right? Like, like is Paul giving a command against vegetarianism here? That seems like a weird thing to do. So what is he talking about? Like, what's actually going on? Well, Paul starts out by, by saying that those who are strong in the faith ought to welcome those who are weak. And he's not talking about those who are on the fringe of believing and trusting in Jesus. He's not talking about new believers there specifically. He's talking about those who are Im, spiritually immature. Now, oftentimes, the spiritually immature are new believers. They are the ones who are on the fringe. They are the ones who haven't been discipled yet and they're still figuring things out and they, they haven't really learned yet how to live and follow Jesus with nuance while living in the real world that's broken and stained by sin. All right? so, so oftentimes the spiritually immature are the new believers, but that's not always the case. Sometimes, oftentimes even the spiritually immature have been Christians for a while but they make a steady habit of forcing things that Jesus never commanded into the equation of following him. They make a steady habit of saying, well, if you really love Jesus, you'd live this way. They take conscience-level issues and they turn them into matters of righteousness. That's what's going on here. And it's also what's going on in the, the first century church. Paul dealt with this issue over and over and over again in his writings. Just about every letter he wrote to either a church or a church leader has him dealing with this issue in some kind of way. And this issue came wrapped sometimes both in Jewish and in Gentile clothing. It wasn't a specific issue of one specific group. Everybody seemed to be guilty of this. Uh, the, the group There was a group that... Um, uh, called the Judaizers, that, that 
Paul had to address on a, on a normal basis. And that's who he tears into, just launches into an attack in, uh, in the book of Galatians. Right? He absolutely wants to undo their work. They were a group that, that crept into churches after Paul left, and they would say, oh, that's great, you've been saved by faith. But listen, listen, if you really want Jesus to be happy with you, you need to do all this other Jewish stuff too. All right, and so you need to follow all the, the Jewish dietary laws, and you need to wash your hands in a certain way. And if you're a man, you need to be circumcised like the Jewish men were circumcised. And so they creep in and say, that's great. I'm glad Jesus is in your heart and your life. But listen, he's also God, and if you want him to be happy, do this, 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 and this. And Paul just goes off on them in the book of Galatians. He's, he, he doesn't have polite words for them. But the Jews weren't the only people who were guilty of this. The Gentiles were sometimes guilty of this stuff too. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to deal with the same issue from the other direction. Um, in the first century, there, were, there was this group of people who would come into the church and and forbid eating a certain type of, of meat. So in, in, in the, the world that they were living in, there were lots of false temples to false gods, and there would usually be an animal sacrifice in these temples, right? Uh, and so they believed that these false gods needed to be fed, right? You needed to take care of them. They needed to be bathed. They needed to be uh, fed and all these kinds of things. And, and so you may not have really thought through this before, but statues don't eat anything, right? And so eventually you just had meat laying there. What do you do with the meat? Eventually you got to clean that up, right? And so two practices would normally uh, occur during this period. Um, some of that meat was used for these big feasts that would happen in the temples, right? Uh, and Paul addresses why Christians shouldn't be involved in that in a different letter, all right? And so that's one of the practices, but not all of the meat was used. There's so much of it going on that they couldn't actually eat all of it at the feast, and so you had all this other meat that was just kind of left lying around, and some people were superstitious about eating it because they believed it was sacrificed to a, a, to a god, and so they were like scared of, of doing anything with that meat. Like, you don't mess with the god's meat, right? That god might do something to you, uh, but Christians figured out that you could just go get that meat for cheap. <laughs> Sometimes they might even just give it to you. And they weren't scared of some false god. What's he going to do, right? He's not even real. He's not going to do anything about it. Go get you a steak, right? And so the practice developed among the, the early church of going and getting some cheap meat. It was good meat. that like, was just laying there. Nobody wanted to touch it. They were all scared about it. I'm not scared about it. I'm going to go eat well tonight. All right? And so that's what happened, and that's all great and good, except for the fact that there were a lot of people in the Corinthian church who had come to faith out of that practice, of that idolatrous act of sacrifice. And so there was still a whole bunch of emotion attached to it for them, right? It was way more than just merely meat to them. And so arguments arose in the, the, the church about whether or not Christians should eat the meat. And Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians in two ways, and both of them are incredibly important for understanding Christian maturity. So both ways are important. The first way he addressed it was this, that you don't get to make rules that restrict Christian liberty just because you're uncomfortable with something. That's not the game we're playing here. Uh, we don't have a lowest common denominator version of do's and don'ts for Christians. If God didn't command something, you don't get to come in after him and command it either. You're not the master, he is, right? Or as Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You don't get to 
You don't get to make the rules for other people. But the second angle of attack is just just as important for Paul. He tells the spiritually mature in Corinth that it was their job to freely and joyfully lay down their liberties for the good of others. Both of those things in play, that that the mature ones in the room, it was their job to initiate sacrificial service to to their friends and family. So why is that important for our time today? Well, because Paul's addressing the exact same logic here in Romans 14. The exact same logic. Um, Jeff Muster is going to preach next week about the second piece of that when we get to the back half of chapter 14. But this week, this morning, we get to look at the first part a little deeper. Right? So you ready? Look at verse 1 again. As for the one who is weak in faith, starting the context helping us here. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So Paul says, welcome them instead of despising them, right? Instead of looking down upon them. And welcoming here is all about hospitality. It's all about hospitality. Open yourself up to them. Look for ways to serve them and spend time with them. Go out of your way even to make them feel welcomed and valued and appreciated. That's what biblical hospitality is. Open yourself, offer yourself to them to serve them. Now, does this mean that both opinions are equally valid, equally right? No. No, it doesn't. Paul clearly calls one of these people the weaker brother. One of these people is seeing the issue incorrectly, but at the end of the day, their conscience matters. Their conscience matters. And it's the stronger brother's job in that moment not to to constantly debate them on that, but find a way to serve them in that. To be welcoming and hospitable in that. Never at a level that, that takes secondary things and makes them into primary things. Never at a level that allows the weaker brother's conscience to be lord over everyone else's. Never as a test for righteousness, but as an, as an accommodating allowance for people to live according to what they believe God is calling them to. Yeah. That's what Paul has in view here. And the reverse is also true that if you want to believe that God has called you to a specific conscience issue, that's okay. Like, it really is okay. There's freedom here for that, but you don't get to pretend that you stand in judgment over others who haven't been called to the same thing. Why? Because God gladly welcomes the one who freely eats and the one who, out of conscience, abstains. Servants don't get to put restrictions on what the master has freely given. We're a servant, not the master. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So there is coming a day when each and every follower of Jesus will stand before God and be judged by how they followed him, which means that it's not your job, right? 
It's just not. It's not my job. It's not your job. It's, it's God's job. Yes, and amen. Lovingly pursue the brother when you see sin that needs to be repented of. That's an act of others-focused love that not only has God commanded us to engage in, but also, like, if we're honest with ourselves, I desperately need. Like, anybody else? Like, I need to be engaged in my sin. I need accountability. I need brothers who will love me and pursue me when I sin. I desperately need that. But Paul's not talking about that here. He's not talking about sin level issues. He's talking about conscience level issues that the Bible is silent on. Silent on. And at the end of the day, we will each answer to God alone for those things. Not each other. Even as, as, as a leader here, not, not even me. God alone. We each already have a master and we don't, don't get to pretend that we're masters of each other. Loving brothers and sisters who engage, yes, but never the master. So if God calls you to walk in a specific way, whether it's freedom or it's abstinence, fill in the blank or whatever issue you want to talk about, he's the one who will carry you through to the end. He is the one who in his power, not yours, will have you standing on the day of reckoning. He is the sustainer. So the weaker brother doesn't get to make rules for everybody else and the stronger brother doesn't get to look down their nose on those walking in obedience to their conscience. And so whichever one you are, the game you play is to humble yourself and stay in your own lane. That's really what it is. Or, you know, we could just look at our cheat sheet again, right? It's not about you. Think less of yourself. Think more of others. Play the longer kingdom of God game. Like, let's live like what comes after our 80 to 100 years. But Paul's not done. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives, gives thanks to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Okay, again, context will help us massively here. So one of the major debates that, that popped up in the first century that was just kind of passed around was whether or not Christians should observe the Sabbath day, the Jewish day of rest, right? Should, are Christians required to observe the Sabbath day, and often lumped into that category were some of the special observance days in the Jewish calendar, right? Uh, days like the Feast of Booths and the, the Feast of Pentecost, stuff. Uh, feasts like the Feast of um, uh, the Day of Atonement, they were no longer needed for Christians because Jesus died on the cross and made payment for our sins. And so he atoned for our sins in those moments. You don't keep offering sacrifices in those moments. So those kinds of things were out of bounds. But like, what about like the other stuff where we, you know, you know like celebrate that God gave us a harvest, are we still required to celebrate that day? Like God commanded it in the Old Testament. Should we shut down everything and celebrate the feast of harvest? Are we required to do that? And Paul's answer to that question is ultimately no. No. 
Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. you. You don't get to come in after him. You're not called to come in after him and keep fulfilling that law over and over and over again. But the question of, can we celebrate that? That's a different question. Must we celebrate them? No. Can we celebrate them? Well, it depends. It depends. It depends on why you want to celebrate. What, what's your intent? Are you celebrating those things because you think that they purchase something for you from God? That you can get something out of him because you followed the, the religious practice. If, if that's your aim, if that's your intent, if that's your motive, we could say, Paul would argue that that's out of bounds. It's out of bounds. But if your celebration is rooted in a conscience level need to honor the God who gives, well, that's something that's good to celebrate, right? That's something that we should celebrate that people are celebrating. And we're seeing some of this play out in, in even this week for us today, right? Like, like Lent just started. Like, are Christians required to fast during a special season leading up to Easter? Yes or no? No! <laughs> no, we're not required to fast in that way. It's assumed that we will fast in certain seasons, but are we required to fast for 40 days? No! Not even a little bit. No days are more sacred than others. Can you choose to fast to prepare your heart for that season? Well, it depends on your intent. Same answer, right? If you do so because you think that it earns you some kind of favor or right standing with God, a little religious power up for your spring, then Paul would argue that that's out of bounds. But if you simply want to discipline yourself to, over the next month and plus to, to want Jesus more than what you're giving up in that season, that's a good thing. That's, a, that's something you shouldn't go around telling people about, but if I were to find out, I'd be applauding you, right? I'd be so happy for you in that moment. That's something to celebrate, so go ahead and fast away. But look at verse 6 again. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of who? The Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the who? The Lord. If you're doing it to honor the Lord, or, like, like who gets to complain against that? If you're doing it to manipulate him or serve him in some kind of way, that's terribly out of bounds. But if you're doing it to, to honor him, that's something worthy of celebration. Obey your master according to the conscience that he's seen fit to give you. That's a good thing. Outside of things that have been clearly defined for us in the scripture, your conscience takes the lead. That's how it works. And if your conscience leads you to serve the Lord in this way instead of that way, if you're truly, honestly, genuinely doing it to honor the Lord, then other folks, guys, other folks need to back off. That's, that's what it is. You don't answer to other people's consciences. You answer to the king who gave you yours. You answer to the one who lived and died and was raised again. You answer to the one who will one day judge the living and the dead. Could your conscience mature and change over time? Yup. We see it all the time here. It's a good thing and we'll celebrate that too. The weaker brother may one day become the stronger brother. That's a good thing to celebrate. 
But until that day, for now, verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And so each one of us, whether we're led by redeemed consciences towards freedom or towards abstinence, each one of us are called to live as though Jesus is Lord, not me or you or fill in the blank with anyone else. And Jesus is a big enough God to work out the details. Right? We trust that, right? Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for, uh, for it is written, and he quotes Isaiah here, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. At the end of the day, no matter uh, what people believe about themselves, neither brother is more righteous and neither brother is actually more free. Seriously, like, like both the strong and the weak, they both find their righteousness in the gifted or imputed righteousness of Jesus, not anything else they add to the equation. Both the strong and the weak, they find their freedom by being set free from the bondage of sin by the one who is mighty to save, not anything that they've added to the equation. And they will both, both one day stand and give an account before the judgment seat of God. And no one, Absolutely no one in that moment is going to get to say, aren't you proud of me because I, I abstain from such and such. He doesn't care. <laughs> he called you to it. Good job. And no one on that day is going to be able to say, aren't you proud of me because I lived in freedom to such and such. What they will both do both the stronger brother and the weaker brother, what they will both do is bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. That's the finish line. We will have all of our deeds laid bare and every single hidden motive and agenda of our hearts will be known and we will stand before our king and give an account. But that day is not here yet. And so until then, we have charity. We have charity. There's, there's zero room in the church for self-righteous judgment among his servants. And there's also zero room for looking down our noses at those to hold a different views of conscience. Both are out of bounds. The days are short, so don't you dare get distracted by backbiting and silly little debates that won't matter 10,000 years from now. That's what Paul's saying. Think less of yourself. Think more of others. Play the longer kingdom of God game. And when we do that, the church might just end up being seen as an otherworldly outpost of something special. So, how, how do we respond to this, right? Seems like a weird thing to call for a response to. But God's word has been read and proclaimed. Like, how do we respond to, to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. We say it every single week because it's true. You, you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into what he's revealed about himself in Romans chapter 14. So here's the question. How does your conscience lead you on many of these secondary and tertiary issues? And maybe more importantly, how have you seen and treated others who hold the different conscience views? Like how do you actually 
see them. Both self-righteous judgment and self-enlightened smugness are rooted in the same sinful lack of humility. They are. Both are out of bounds for God's people. And so if that's you, repent this morning. Repent. Or, or maybe you're here today and your conscience has been calling you to act on something, but for whatever reason you haven't listened to it. Can I just be honest with you? That's a really dumb idea. If God's, if God's leading you to, to walk, live, act in such a way according to your conscience, ignoring your conscience is a bad call. It's unwise. And it seems that you will one day stand and answer to God for what you did with that knowledge. So respond to his word this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have a, some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you in some kind of way this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. Repent of your sin and call on him as Lord this morning. Your sin separates you from God. It deserves the punishment of God, but God is also, at the very same moment, the great justifier. God put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross as a substitute to pay the debt for your sin. He makes payment for your sin, and so trust him this morning. Call on him as Lord, and you will be saved. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if somebody wants to walk, some help walking through what that response of faith looks like. But, oh, guys, let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 14. I know my own heart well enough to know that I have seasons of self-righteous smugness over the things that I'm free to do. And I have seasons of self-righteous justification over the things that I feel others ought to do. But I, God, I'm not the master. Humble my heart before you. I am the servant. In the moments where, by your grace, I'm the stronger brother, just help me be hospitable, welcoming, serving, accommodating. God, where my heart, sinful as it remains, sometimes lands me in the spot of the weaker brother. Call me to repentance. By your grace, give me maturity. I cannot do this alone, but I don't think you've called us to. You've given us church family, and you've given us yourself, and you've given us the scriptures and all of these things, and so we don't walk in darkness. God, give me a hunger for humility this morning. Oh, would it flow out of me far more than it ever does. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you 
open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know this morning. You are good. And you are mighty to save. And you are the one who calls us out of every weird background that we come out of and makes us your own. So give us yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.